When you have to prove a concept, people don't want to take risks on you. So if you can if you can sign a lease and give some form of a guarantee to an owner, they're going to be a lot more flexible with what you're trying to accomplish. You go to a developer that has competition and they want a leg up. So you come in and you say, look, I know you're not finished with your project yet, but I can come in and give you 100% occupancy for 10 years before you even open. When you make that pitch, people, people are going to light up a little bit. They're going to hear you and say, tell me more. Some people will be skeptical. Some people will be excited. But that's really the beginning of the conversation. And once you do a few of them, you can, you know, you can really, again, snowball. Uh, you get more developers interested. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Evan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Can we just start uh, with a little bit about your kind of story growing up and your background? Yeah, happy to do so. I I grew up in the uh, Washington, D.C. area, basically in Georgetown. But for a few years, some people know this about me, some don't, but I actually lived in Tokyo until I was six years old. So I had a lot of international travel with my family growing up, but primarily based in the, in the D.C. area. Went to college at SMU, spent some time in Dallas. And I went back to DC. I started out a career at CBRE. I was actually in the management consulting division. So a lot of people don't know they have that. It's a team that focuses on occupier consulting. So Google, Microsoft, GE, all of these firms typically outsource real estate functions. CBRE is one of the firms that will manage it for them. Oftentimes they say, how can we, how can we right size our portfolio? How can we reduce our CapEx or our OpEx? So we were part of a team that was tasked with cutting GSA, so federal government spending by a billion dollars a year. So we had to look at their whole 370 million square foot portfolio, which is pretty uh, pretty fun to peek into. So shortly after that, I ended up moving out to Los Angeles through CBRE. But my business school mentor introduced me to a guy named Gunther Schmidt and... Gunther is the founder and former CEO of the Medici Living Group, which is oftentimes called the largest global co-living operator. They've got about 16 different cities that they're active in in the U.S. They're in about four cities right now and growing. So he asked me to join specifically because in his past, Gunther is from Germany, if you can tell (laughs) from the name, but he found out that Investors really wanted to see a U.S.-based company. Uh, They were discounting the fact that it was a Berlin-headquartered company, and he wanted to simultaneously launch both the United States and Europe. So he brought me on board to basically launch the the U.S. platform. And that was in what year? Uh, We got together in 2015. That was your kind of first splash into co-living. What all did you do there? I didn't know too much about the space, to be honest. I don't think a lot of people did in 2015. But Gunther had been doing it for a couple of years 
where he would lease apartments in Berlin and furnish them uh, to give to his employees. He had trouble getting people to move to Berlin because of the Berlin housing laws. He needed to have a German landlord's approval, right, or, or a letter of recommendation, or you need a German credit. He started furnishing these units and giving them to his employees, saying, here you go. I know you can't find housing, but here's a here's a room you can live in it, and I need you to start next week. That was the way that he got started. And, you know, I had just moved out to LA. I was there for about a year. I was living in a house with three other guys, basically co-living myself. He explained the concept to me and it completely made sense. And I was at a point where I was really looking to jump into a startup. I'd been investing as an angel investor in all kinds of companies that were <laughs> One of them was was a food truck related app. I mean, I was I was all over the place, but I knew I wanted to be part of something that was explosive. So when he brought this opportunity, it matched my skill set, and I said, "Okay, let's do it." So the early days were explaining what the concept of co living was. It was convincing investors that this is a viable product that we could get institutional support. Uh, it really came down to finding the first deal, the first proof of concept project, which we ended up finding in at 324 Grand Street in uh, Lower East Side, Manhattan. That was the first project we ever did. And it was actually the first full building project that Medici had ever done. So as part of a an effort to really propel the company forward, we rebranded as Quarters which is a brand you'll find. You go to quarters.com. And and that was in, I believe we launched that one in 2016. That really kicked off co-living in the US for us. And after that first project was done, when you could tour an investor or a partner or tenant through what we were building, it began to snowball from there. So before we dive into co-living real quick, you just mentioned some interesting things about your story. I just wanted to ask like two questions and then we'll dive right into co-living. How did you cut a billion dollars of the GSA from the government? Was there any like <laughs> silver bullets or was it lots of little things or was it easy? Well, the GSA has so many occupancies. They have a combination of an owned portfolio and a lease portfolio. So what they do is they'll they'll lease space from a landlord and then they'll sublease space to an agency like uh, Social Security Administration or FEMA or any of these groups, right? They call it an occupancy agreement, an OA. So they had such a big portfolio that it's hard to track efficiencies because when you run a portfolio that big, most of your manpower is just kept maintaining the portfolio, trying to keep up with rents and work orders and keep the ship moving, right? Sailing. So when we would come in, we would say, well, look, you've got three or four leases in one submarket that are expiring within the next two years. And you own a building in that submarket. Have you looked at consolidations? Have you looked at workplace strategies? You could change your your uh, utilization ratio from you know, 400 square feet per employee to 250 square feet per employee. You can do that by doing X, Y, and Z. So 
we went through each agency. And this is in the, the civilian sector, right? We didn't touch the DOD. This is GSA as a civilian agency. So we went through those various agencies and we had to identify a strategic plan. So you're just doing a lot of consolidation. Cool. I never heard that before. So I wanted to dig into that. All right. Coming back to co-living. So when did you, how long were you at Medici and, and when did you leave and when did you start Elk? Yeah, so I was at Medici until about 2018. And after I left Medici, I joined a developer in Santa Monica, WS Communities. I was there for about a year in a dual capacity. I was both the CEO of their furnished housing operating company, and I was a managing director for equity and acquisitions. So after Medici, I spent about a year in the development world before deciding to go out on my own. And it was good because Medici, and a lot of these co-living companies are operators and they're reliant on developers or owners to make their business model work. And then I had the experience of going from that to a developer who owned his own real estate and wanted to tweak his portfolio to maximize the return. And there's so much more that you can do when you actually own the real estate yourself, as opposed to being a management firm, asking the owner for every little thing. So I, I, got, I got to see both sides. And when I went out on my own, I took that experience with me. Of course, I'm still learning every day, but at least that there's a pretty good foundation to work off of there. At Medici, were y'all usually going into like a developer would build a building and then y'all would master lease it? Or were you going into, you know, apartments that had already been used as apartments for a long time and converting them to more of a co-living style or both? Well, the business model for the Medici Living Group is master leases. They've been shifting it from what I heard, from what I've, what I've heard recently into a more management focused model. And we can get into that in a little bit, but... We started out as a management, uh, I'm sorry, as a master lease firm. And the reason you do that is because when you have to prove a concept, people don't want to take risks on you. So if you can, if you can sign a lease and give some form of a guarantee to an owner, they're going to be a lot more flexible, uh, to, to what you're trying to accomplish. And are you trying to meet those owners like while they're in development? Like how many people own buildings that are just totally vacant and ready to be occupied? Oh, I must have met probably a thousand over the few years at least. We, I, I was flying under 20,000 miles a year, ping-ponging across the U.S., meeting everyone I could because I was really the only guy in the U.S. from day one. We had a lot more staff in Berlin. So what you would find were a lot of developers in the middle of this housing boom, right? The world, everything was kind of leasing up, but you, you go to a developer that has competition and they want a leg up. So you come in and you say, look, I know you're not finished with your project yet, but I can come in and give you a hundred percent occupancy for 10 years before you even open. So when you say that when you, when you make that pitch, People, people are going to light up a little bit. They're going to hear you and say, tell me more. Yep. Some people will be skeptical. Some people will be excited. But that's really the beginning of the conversation. And once, once you start there, you can, once you do a few of them, you can, you know, you can really, again, snowball 
uh, you get more developers interested. And we'll get into the the different revenue models in a second. But before we kind of dive deeper in, like, how do you define co-living in general? And then how, how does that relate to what you're doing now at Elk? Sure. Well, co-living is really furnished housing where you rent by the room. And that's that's probably the simplest way to put it. Everyone has their own spin on it. It's like the word luxury. You see, you see luxury signs all around your city and you don't really know what type of building you're going to find on the inside. So co-living is, is more of a buzzword these days. But whenever I explain co-living, I always focus on three pillars. It's affordability, flexibility, and it's convenience. And what I've learned to do, I'll, I'll give you the story. Every time I meet with someone who asks me about this, Most guys are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and a lot of people have children. A lot of people have children that have just graduated college or on their first or second job trying to find an affordable place to live. So I always always talk to someone, I say, you know, imagine your son just graduated from college and he just got a job at Netflix. So he he says, hey, dad, I'm going to move out to California. I'm going to live in Hollywood. I'm going to work for Netflix. He's making $65,000, $75,000 a year and gets all excited. Well, he's shocked, the son in this example, when he finds out that a one-bedroom apartment is $2,500 a month at least. New construction is upwards of $3,000 a month in Hollywood. And that doesn't work. That doesn't work with your salary. If you want to be near where you work. So you know, he's going to go on Craigslist. Or he's going to call friends. He's going to try to find a roommate. And he's going to try to find, or he's going to live in a rent-controlled building that was built in 1950 that probably doesn't have AC, is a questionable level of safety and, and comfort. And, and those are almost 100% occupied. So if you get one, you're competing with 10 other people to get a lease. Uh, and and they they sell out you know sell out I guess <laughs> in uh, in hours so so let's say he finds a place to live then this son needs to call his dad and say hey dad can you ship me some furniture right or I need I need something I can't afford to spend this a thousand dollars on a couch or a bed you know y- you have to build from scratch and it's too expensive to do that. So they go through that pain. And then you got to set up the utilities and the Wi-Fi. I personally found out that it can take three weeks to get your Wi-Fi set up. I mean, when I when I set up with SoCal Edison, or I'm sorry, the uh well, SoCal Edison actually took a while to come out to my house. That's the electricity. The um Comcast, some of these other firms needed a few weeks to come to my place. So I don't know the last time you went weeks without Wi-Fi, but it feels like you're living in the dark ages. <laughs> no. So it's uh, it's difficult. So anyways, you know, we, we've got this, this example of a kid finally sets everything up. Well, what happens if after three months he doesn't like Hollywood or he loses his job or he decides he wants to move to another city? He's stuck. And the point of this story is that real estate is generally inflexible. It's bricks, it's sticks. It's got a heavily regulated financial industry that doesn't allow owners and developers to to flex and be creative. So 
you have this type of product that doesn't necessarily meet the demand of a renter today. And in addition to that, renters today, they have Spotify, they have Uber, they have Netflix. They have these on-demand services that are subscription-based, affordable, and come with a cancellation policy where anytime you're done, you can walk away. So you look at that contrast between the tech industry and real estate, and there's just a consumer appetite for a type of product that's just a little bit more flexible, a little bit more convenient, a little bit more affordable. So so we do that by, again, uh, three things. Affordability, we provide that by providing a small space to rent, Uh, whether it's a micro unit, whether it's a co-living bedroom, some other creative solution. On a rent per foot basis, it's very high for the developer, but on a total dollar basis for the renter, it's below market. So it's kind of a win-win, right? Yep. And how, how like how big is a micro unit or a co-living unit in your eyes? Well, what we provide anywhere from 100 feet to, to 300 feet. So it could be a very small bedroom all the way up to kind of a 300 square foot hotel room style suite. And then they're sharing the living room and everything with their their other roommates? They can be. Yeah. And we'll, we'll jump in in a moment into my unique spin on the model. We provide variety. We don't just do co-living. We provide a variety of products. So they each have their own purpose. But yeah, you really, you hit that affordability, right? By providing something small uh, that that is at a price point they can afford. You hit the flexibility by having lease terms that are less, typically less than a year can be 31 days, 90 days. And then you provide convenience because every unit comes fully furnished with Wi-Fi and utilities included in the price point and already set up. Yeah, let's let's dive into that. We can talk a little bit about kind of the different revenue models, but you mentioned earlier in the discussion that if if you are actually an operator and you own the real estate, there's a lot more advantages to that. So maybe let's just talk about what you're doing and why there's advantages to that. And then I want to I want to hear more about how like a, a just a pure operator that's just signing a master lease, how they make money and how the developers make money. Yeah, sure. So my company, Elk Development, is now focused on what we call solo suites. And we've taken the concept of co-living and basically turbocharged it. So we've realized that residents want a combination of community and privacy. And the example that I'll give is at Medici Living, we found that renters paid $500 more a month when they had a private ensuite bathroom versus when they had to share a bathroom, right? So you hear a number like that and you have to take that into consideration in your model because a lot of co-living operators have shared uh, shared bathrooms. So what I do is we we focus on providing as much furnished and flexible, affordable housing as possible through a combination of micro units so it could be as small as 300 square feet, co-living units where people are living together communally, conventional furnished units for someone who might be on the go. And then we do oftentimes, and some of our ground of development projects have room for just conventional apartment units. 
And what's important about being a developer and an operator is that at any point, I have the choice to furnish or unfurnish to make it all-inclusive or not all-inclusive, right? I can, I can adjust these units uh, throughout the time that I own the property on my demand, right? And on, on the fly. So I don't have to run as co-living to make the business model work. It's increasing the ROI for the investment, but it's not necessary, right? That's, that's really the power of, of being an owner-operator. And when you think about the flex, uh, the, you said the three pillars, but the flexibility, are you, uh, as the operator and also as the owner, are you signing like a master lease with yourself to be able to provide that flexibility, or are you doing it lease by lease? No, we're doing it lease by lease. Got it. And, you d- and you're designing these units to where you can kind of either furnish them or do different things with them as you kind of see how the project fills out and where the demand is? Yes, that's right. So they are designed as co-living units and micro units and conventional units. So they're, they're, we have the three different types. They're purpose-built, but uh, we can choose to make them all inclusive or not to make them furnished or not at, at any point. And the utility cost, as an example, can be you know, $100, $200 a month in a unit. So if a renter didn't want to pay a premium, if they said, you know, I want to bring my own stuff and I just want to pay for my utilities. A lot of people are very green these days, and conscious about energy consumption. And, you know, if, if that's how they want to live, then we can make that adaptation almost immediately. So just like one minute on just clarifying. So how do you define a micro unit? Something that's 100 to 300 square feet? Yeah, a micro unit, let's just call it less than 500 square feet. Okay. And that's coming, uh, does that have a bathroom in it or that has everything but the bathroom? A micro unit has everything a conventional unit would have. So a full kitchen with a place to sleep and live. Okay. And then co-living is, how do you define that? Co-living is going to be a collection of suites. So you may have a four bed, four bath or a four bed, two bath. So each bedroom will have some form of a different level of of build out, depending on who the operator is or the owner. But basically they rent by the room and outside the bedroom, everyone shares a kitchen or a living room or both. It's kind of like a college dorm. That's right. And then what's the percentage of people that are requesting a furnished place versus a non-furnished place? And has that changed uh, since COVID? Well, most people are like the furnished option because it's actually cheaper than neighboring non-furnished options, right? So the idea behind the business model is your, again, the affordability, the flexibility, the convenience. If you can provide a furnished housing option cheaper than the neighboring class A apartment building, it's a good value proposition. So during COVID, and we can we can jump in that too, into that too uh, in a little bit, but COVID has really it's been really interesting what's happened to the co-living space. It's largely mirrored conventional multifamily, right? So if you have 10% dip in rents on conventional multifamily, you're seeing the same in co-living. 
you have a slow release up in conventional multifamily, you're seeing the same in co-living. It, it hasn't been a disproportionately negatively impacted asset class. Got it. In this furnished units, are you renting the furniture or are you purchasing it? We purchase the furniture. So we build custom furniture uh, through one of our providers. And then just digging in a little bit, what, and maybe as it relates to what you're doing, but then also let's just maybe think a little more broader, like industry. Uh, what amenities do you see in co-living that you don't see in a multifamily community, like a traditional multifamily community? Well, the most obvious amenity is the is inside the unit itself, right? You have furnished all-inclusive housing. That That is a massive amenity that you're providing to renters. You're going to have some kind of communal living area where people are hanging out and socializing, getting to know each other, or uh, just generally living together, coexisting. So that in and of itself is a big the big amenity, but outside of the unit, you're going to see shared kitchens, so almost institutional quality kitchens, right? Or and dining halls where people can get together. You're going to see large living rooms where people can get together. You're obviously going to have gyms, maybe co-working spaces, lounges. The general idea behind amenity space in co-living is whatever you're not giving the renter in their room or in their unit. You need to make for you need to make up for it in a communal amenity zone, whether it's outside of their bedroom in the shared unit or outside of their unit in the building's shared amenity space. So, like, pick one of your developments. What are your communal amenities in that uh, development? Sure. So we have a development in Hollywood right now. We have a large co-working lounge that has a combination of lounge spaces, desks, offices, and phone booths. So it's it's really like a WeWork for all the renters. So we believe that, especially with COVID right now, a lot of people are working remotely. They don't necessarily want to be alone, though, all the time. So we're providing them an office at their house. And it's going to be a you know, class A office. We've got a gym and then we've got a, a massive outdoor rooftop, uh, rooftop amenity zone where we have a spa. We've got like a 80 square foot hot tub up there, which is pretty wild. We've got a dog run. We've got a grill and a barbecue and just general lounge seating. So it's, it's similar to what you would see in a class A development with more emphasis on the co-working and and uh, communal uh, gathering. You did an article, you might not even remember it, in BizNow in like 2017. And part of it was around the sharing economy and how, you know, I don't know if it was through technology, but uh, in, as, as it related to co-living, that the sharing economy was kind of an amenity. Can you speak to that? Is that still a thing now in 2020 or... Do people share more in these co-living spaces or or no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what co-living is. So you're sharing a, a living room and a kitchen and you're going to be able to have a higher quality amenity by sharing it for a lower price. So I, I think it's as powerful and as strong as ever. 
even in, in this COVID landscape, you've got a lot of renters that are stuck at home and probably can't afford something nice, right? So, and what's interesting demographically, and I, I've got some statistics I wrote down we can talk about later, but a lot of renters that are living in LA, you, you read about people leaving LA, you know, quote, leaving LA. It's, it's the people that have the means to leave LA that are leaving. A lot of people are working in LA. They can't go anywhere. They've got a great job. They've got a great life. And they're just forced to kind of deal with it. So one of the statistics that I had was that I believe it was 2% of we, we were looking at USPS change of addresses and permanent address changes are up 2% year over year. However, temporary address changes are up 27%. So you've got a lot of people that are temporarily moving, maybe because they can for a little bit, but they want to come home. Let's get into a little bit on just kind of how these assets are are financed and and how you underwrite them. And so maybe the first question would be, you know, this development that you had in Hollywood. Can you talk to me about, you know, how it was financed, maybe like how the lenders looked at it, what what your story was? Was it did they look at it as kind of a conventional multi-deal with all these different uh suite sizes and uh or how how was it looked at on their end? Sure. Yeah. So the better example for us would be our Koreatown project. We're under construction right now. We just closed a loan about a month ago. And we had our lender looking at the project as co-living. So that project is 86 beds. And they underwrote it as 86 micro units rather than it's 40 conventional units, but it's really 86 micro units or co-living suites as we would as we would call them. And the lender, it took a little while to get them to understand the concept. But once they did, and you compare the, our performer rents to the neighboring buildings rents, they realized that uh, what we had underwritten did make sense. And so they were able to give us conventional financing at as as a co-living project this this might be one of the first out there i am sure that common has done a few of these as well but they didn't look at it they didn't look at a, a fallback scenario you hear that oftentimes where people say well what's the downside what do i do if the co-living doesn't work out and our lender did not do that and my answer i'm sure a lot of people have asked this uh, what what's the downside I get asked it personally all the time. Well, my answer is that you don't want to underwrite a conversion to conventional multifamily as a downside scenario. Because let's say you're getting 1,800 of room. Why would you spend X million dollars in CapEx to convert a building to make 1,200 of room? Right? So... What's a better option if you just lowered the rent to 1400 a room or $1,200 a room, you're going to be basically at market rate and a little bit higher than that. So we've had to educate some lenders on actually looking at the downside scenario where we explained to them, it does not make sense to, to underwrite a conversion scenario because you're just going to waste money. At the end of the day, if you, you'll make 
a better NOI by just and a, and, a, and a higher yield on cost by just lowering the rents, maybe not including utilities anymore. You can make some tweaks to your model, and you'll be extremely competitive with the rest of the marketplace. And just explain that real quick. Uh, you, if you mentioned like the eighteen hundred dollar a room scenario, but then you would convert it and you'd only get twelve hundred. Why? Why would you actually get less if you converted it into bigger units? So let's say you've got a thousand square foot two bed, two bath, or two bed, one bath, even. Okay. You're renting it for 1800 room, like 3,600. Well, as co-living. As co-living. That's right. Well, if you paid to convert it to a one bed, one bath with a, so it's got a big bedroom, a big living room and a kitchen. One bedroom rents the neighborhood are going to be $2,400 a month. Right. So you're going to spend money to make less. Whereas if it's 1800 a room, just, just lower it to 1500 a room, lower it to 1400 a room. You're still making more than the one bedroom market rate rents. When you're underwriting and you're going to the banks, are there certain things that you're having to underwrite? If, for example, CapEx for furnishings, or are you having to uh, reserve extra capital at the bank? Like, is there anything kind of nuance there that's different when a bank's looking at co-living? Yes. Yes. So furniture reserves, similar to CapEx reserves, we'll call out uh, furniture reserves specifically as an additional line item. Typically, you replace it every five years. Some of the things we buy have lifetime warranties. That's important for people to take note of that you can really save yourself if, if you've got a lifetime warranty on a product. The other thing that banks are going to see are your utility costs. That's the biggest differential between conventional and co-living. If you're going to pay for people's utilities, that's going to drive up your operating expenses pretty substantially. So what you need to do is make sure that that you've you've clearly called out your CAM, right? You've got your, your common area utilities and just conventional utilities for the building. Then you also have your all-inclusive utilities and your Wi-Fi, which are costs that are, of course, on top of that, quite expensive, but nowhere near the premium you get for having an all-inclusive unit. So in that 1800 a month, I'm just taking that example, is that inclusive of utilities or are you all getting like a, a Wi-Fi contract that you're probably getting a great deal on since you're doing the whole building and then marking it up and then billing the tenant? It's still cheaper than what they would pay, but they're still paying it monthly. So we're doing the latter, but it is included in the 1800. But, so you, we, but you have a margin there, basically. We do, exactly. And the other thing I'll say that that you want to look at Here's a, a tip. You want to cap utilities on each renter. This is something that, that comes up. If you've got a guy who rents your suite and opens up a, you know, a, a data room and is charging 3000 a month in utilities, you don't want to eat that. So we often have a cap on our utility coverage for each month. And it's it's generous. We're not trying to we're not trying to make the renters pay for utilities. We also need to make sure that they're not uh, being excessive. So they get an $1,800 bill each month, and then that's inclusive of like internet, water, electricity, everything? Or is there anything that they get that's paid for outside of the 1800 Parking and pet rent. Those are, those are two additional items that are 
on top of the 1800. So those are optional add-ons with parking. I mean, parking is so limited in LA and not a lot of people, some people don't have cars, some people do. It just really depends on, on where your building is located. So we do charge additional for the parking and then some people will have pets. So this is a, pets are a pretty interesting area of co-living. It's a business by business decision. Are you going to let renters live together with pets? Are allergies a problem? How do you want to handle it? So there's there's many different ways that you can do it. I'm going to get back into uh, once a fully stabilized building. But before I do that, I want to go back to, to kind of the operator management model. So let's just say you were developing a building and you were taking it to a bank and you weren't going to be the operator, but you were going to bring in, you know, common or some kind of management operator. How does the bank look at it there? Do they just underwrite commons financial strength and they see that you're, you know, hundred percent leased? Well, you're bringing up a good point. And that's why there's, there's three different types of models. There's a master lease model, the management model and the owner operator model. So the master lease model I can I can actually go through the strengths, the, the ups and downs of each model if you'd like. Yeah, let's do it. I guess it, let's do it. Okay. So the man, the master lease model is powerful because let's say you have an agreement with a landlord at two fifty a foot. You're going to get every single dollar above two fifty a foot in your pocket, right? So the reason the master lease model is powerful is because as a co living firm you get every dollar above into your pocket. You don't have to do necessarily do a profit share. The downside is actually very risky. Number one, you have to secure the lease. And number two, you're susceptible to market cycles, right? So if the market, if the rents drop because of something like COVID, you still owe the same base rent to the landlord. Uh, but the, the more important item is the deposit. We would have to put up anywhere from a one-year, anywhere from a three-month to a one-year deposit in cash so that a bank would accept our lease. That is very expensive, especially for these venture-backed startups. It's not a good use of your venture capital. So a lot of these groups have found creative ways to finance that deposit or they switch to the management model. Before we go to management, I have one question. As the landlord, as the building owner, what are your requirements other than delivering a finished building? Are they required to do all the maintenance if something breaks? Like what is a what is an owner uh, responsible mm, for? Question. And I, and I'd like to do that on all three models just to get a like see where the the accountability lies depending on what model you go with. So we called the master lease model a double net lease, where we would have the owner uh, responsible for taxes, insurance, and capital reserves or capex repairs. So a little bit more specifically, if a toilet breaks, uh, Medici would pay for fixing the toilet. If the building structure is collapsing, that's going to be on the landlord. And it's it's just very spelled out what what falls in what buckets. Yes, 
Although it is very spelled out, this is the section in the master lease that takes the longest to negotiate. Yeah, I was going to say like the the master lease company, call it Medici, if a toilet breaks, they're not going to the owner going, well, we should be paying for this, but you put in shitty toilets, no pun intended. Uh, so you need, to, <laughs> you, you need to fix it. Yeah. And elevators are a big question mark. Elevator, we went back and forth on elevators, depending on who the the firm there's there's you know annual maintenance of elevators it's kind of a capex but it's kind of just part of regular building maintenance so that's an example of one that was a gray area where you would negotiate back and forth okay but but for 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 simplicity if you're doing a master lease it's very similar and commercial to like some type of triple net lease where the the majority of the work just falls on the company that's master leasing it and the owner is required to keep reserves for big capex expenses and things like that. Right. And the owner is required by their lender. Yeah. We're, we're not necessarily requiring the owner. We just uh, make sure that the owner has a capability to, to service the building. But that that's typically a, rent, a lender requirement. Okay. Now let's talk about the management model. Management model, it's very similar to a hotel flag model where you're going to, let's say you're the landlord, Chris. I'm going to come to you and say, I will manage your building as co-living for 4%, 5%, 6%, something like that as a, a base management fee. And I want 50% of every dollar above three dollars a foot right so what you do is you structure a financial agreement where you have a guaranteed management fee and then you have an incentive you've got upside for running as co-living and giving the owner additional benefit so it's, it's, it's really interesting because in this model you ask an owner to take on all the financial risk that's one thing I, I, I left out on, on the master lease model. You're going to furnish the building yourself and you're going to take care of everything yourself, right? They give you the building. On the management model, you have to ask the owner to convert his building to co-living, but he doesn't have a financial guarantee. However, he does have upside. So initially, the management model is very risky for an owner and when COVID was just coming out, you're you're asking an owner to take on all of this risk. But if you're unproven, it's very difficult for them to say yes. They're going to say, well, what, I got to spend an extra million dollars on a startup that what happens if you're gone in a year, right? But as the industry has evolved, groups like, again, like Common or, or Ollie of Star City, all these guys build a track record and they say, look, here's my 10,000 beds right now. Here's how they're performing. Here's, here's our historicals. So... This model is stronger for the co-living company because they don't have to put up substantial capex or securitize a lease. However, the downside that they don't make nearly as much money as they do if they were to do a master lease. And in the and the master lease, the the operators bringing in all the furniture on their dime. I'm just using furniture as an example, but in management, the owner is required to buy the furniture is the management company typically coming in saying, here's the furniture you need to buy. This is where you're going to buy it from. Or they just leave it up to like, don't they probably have some quality standards and things they want to see, but they're trying to get the landlord to pay for it all. So how does that work? 
That's absolutely right. All of these firms have their brand playbooks. They, they show up with exactly what the owner needs. And the question of who pays for furniture is actually an interesting one because oftentimes we were able to negotiate an allowance from landlords for furniture, even though we did the master lease. Think of it like a TI allowance, right? So for a master lease, we could negotiate a TI allowance. It might get amortized into the rent, whatever the case, but as a startup, you're preserving as much cash flow as possible. So it's, it's, it's good for you. I've seen management firms also ask the landlord to pay for everything, but I've also seen them have to put up CapEx for the furniture, even though they're just a management company. So it gets tricky. It gets expensive. And as the firms become more established, they have their playbooks, they have their standard terms. As they become bigger players in the industry, they can they, they have more options. So if a landlord isn't playing ball, they can say, fine, we'll go to the next building. Right. Is there one that's better than the other from a landlord's perspective or it's just case by case? Yeah, I would say the management agreement is better because in the master lease model, well, it's going to pretend, let me, let me take a step back for a second. It's going to be landlord preference. Look, if you've got a group that's leasing your property for 10 years and they're putting up $2 million in a security deposit, you're going to underwrite the risk of failure. That's how you look at the deal. You say, great, I'll take it. If you default, I have cash. I can, I can put my building back out on the marketplace. I'll be okay. So if you're very passive, there is strength in, in the master lease model. And we found you know, a family office, someone who's building a building, who's not really an operator, doesn't always outsource to third parties. It can make a lot of sense. But if you're, if you're doing the management agreement, you're dipping your toe into co-living, right? So you might as well get some upside. And that's the other thought. Look, I, I believe that everyone else around me is building overpriced class A multifamily, and I want to be competitive with them. So I'm going to do co-living. I need someone to run it for me, and I'm going to have a, a better yield on cost than my next door neighbor, and I'm going to have you know more upside. So it depends on the risk profile of the owner. So we've kind of broken down how each model works. Now let's assume, you know, just three different scenarios again, and they've all been successful. So you have a landlord that did a master lease, a landlord that did management, and then a landlord that that owns the building and is their operator. And let's just say you're kind of stabilized, you've leased up, and now you're going for permanent financing. Can you get a Fannie or a Freddie loan? Let, let me just start there. Can you get a Fannie or a Freddie loan on co-living? Yes. Can you get one in each scenario? It's going to be hard. Uh, I don't believe you could do it in a master lease scenario. We, we, that was by the time I had left Medici, we had not had a landlord get Fannie or Freddie financing. So, but I do know that you can do it in a management with a management agreement and you certainly can do it as an owner operator. Do you get more value? I guess if you're if you're underwriting like an exit cap, is there a scenario where you get you know better economics on the exit cap if you're a seller, uh, depending on which model? Yeah. So, oh, depending on each model. Um, well, one of the things you're gonna uh, buyer is gonna look at is who's gonna 
continue to operate the property. So if I'm an owner operator, I would have to sell to someone who knew how to manage this type of, of asset. Now, three to five years from now should be no problem. But the last several years, there haven't been enough third-party operators to make people comfortable with that. Now, again, if you look at Common or Ollie, one of these firms, they will stick with the property. They're going to sign a 10-year management agreement. And if the current owner sells, they're going to want to make sure they stay with the property. They, you see, these, these firms have their own incentives. They're venture-backed. They're startups. They're growing. And they're targeting a certain level of scale right, to justify valuations, to justify going public and, and their, their growth trajectory. So they can't afford to be losing supply. They got to make, they have to make sure that they're, they're keeping it within their portfolio. So you're going to see an owner who if Common is managing their building, Common will have a 10-year a management agreement. I, I'm assuming they typically write it that if there's a sale of the asset, their, their management agreement almost effectively works as like a lease. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Interesting. So there have, have there been a lot of sales uh, transactions of co-living properties to date, or it's you know still pretty early and there's not a whole lot to point to. This is this is the big uh, the big question, right? Yeah. Yeah. There haven't been very many sales, and it's unfortunate because you know COVID broke out right when groups were getting traction. I saw. I know Star City bought a couple of assets in Marina Del Rey near me in California, and they were paying effectively a price per unit that you would want. They're, they're owning and operating that building. So they effectively paid an exit cap price for their own asset with the intention to hold long-term you know, a million dollars a unit or more, right? So it was a very high price per unit, a very high price per foot. I saw they had several assets for sale in San Francisco. I, I know a lot of these firms have started listing assets, but I, I do think co-living, or I'm sorry, I do think COVID slowed down that traction. Now, there's a lot of articles that have been coming out recently talking about how co-living has been outperforming conventional multifamily. So you may see over the next few months some sales starting to go through. But for me personally, I, I look at this, see, I'm an owner-operator. We're planning on 10-year holds minimum. So I'm less focused on the exit cap, and I'm more focused on a cash-on-cash return. Yeah, and, and I guess your refi loan. And the refi loan, which we, now, which we know has a marketplace. So I'm, I'm all right from my standpoint. So if co-living's been outperforming during COVID, you could say... I guess that's because people are more cost conscious and are opting to live kind of more affordably. And that's the positive. Is there, are people, is, has it had an impact of like strangers don't really want to live with strangers right now? Or is, have you not seen any of that? Well, there are multiple schools of thought on this. And, and again, I should, I should preface with right now, our firm, I've been in the operating side for the last several years, but Elk Development, we've got about a $250 million pipeline of assets that we own or are closing on in the next month that are all ground up developments. 
So my personal portfolio is not operational right now, although I closely monitor all the others. So I I just want to make that distinction. But the schools of thought that you're going to hear are either, number one, people don't want to be near each other. They're scared. COVID is is making people not want to co-live. Well, the other is that everyone's so lonely and they're all stuck at home, working from home with no social life. So co-living is allowing a small group of people to safely coexist, continue to have a social life and not worry about COVID, right? They can remain socially distant as a, as a small group. A couple more questions just as it relates to tenants while we're on the topic. How often do tenants require a room switch? <laughs> <laughs> not, not very often. Okay. Um, now, the reason why, you have to eliminate friction points. So friction points are going to be noise and smell, generally, and m- maybe a little bit of personality, but most of the people that are co-living are pretty cool, I got to say. So noise, you know, we make sure that our buildings are as soundproof between bedrooms as they are between units. Right? You don't, you don't want to have somebody hearing too much of what's going on in the bedroom next door going to create a lot of disturbances and then smells uh, oh and the last one of course cleanliness so so smells you know if someone's cooking you, you need to make sure that you've got good enough ventilation and that they cook a meal it's not going to stink up the entire apartment right and then cleanliness is certainly the last one so almost every single co-living firm will have some form of Daily, weekly, or monthly cleaning. That is crucial to make sure that that people are able to uh, peacefully coexist. There's nothing worse than if you're clean, you're a neat freak, and you're living with someone who's a slob on two extremes, you're going to butt heads. That's, that's where you get people wanting to, to change. Uh, but the, the thing is, they, they would probably just rather leave, right? I mean, if you're not able to provide a comfortable living environment, People are going to want to go somewhere else. So that's why you have to focus on these types of items. So on the cleaning thing, if you're in like a co-living, let's say it's like four bedrooms in a shared common area, as part of their rent, are you providing cleaning for the common area like once a week? And then it's up to the tenant if they want their bedroom cleaned more than that? Or is it each unit decides how often they want something cleaned? No, that's right. We provide weekly cleanings included in the rent and they can pay an additional fee for the cleaning staff to go into their bedroom. Okay. Another question on tenants that came in was, um, how do you think about the potential for discrimination lawsuits or fair housing issues as it relates to curating a unit mix, i.e. not really letting somebody move in, but the reality is that they just wouldn't have been a good fit for other residents? It's a good question. I was asked that a lot in the beginning. And look, you can't discriminate. It's that simple. So when people apply, you're going to follow the exact same protocols that you follow for a regular apartment applicant. You're going to have standardized measures to you know check the credit and criminal history and prior landlord letters of recommendations. You do all of those things, but they qualify 
uh, they're going to move in. So it's not your job to play matchmaker. It's not your job to try to put people you think will be friends together. That's, that's not your, at the end of the day, you're a housing company and you have to make sure that you, you take these kinds of things seriously. One way that we've really uh, focused on for our new branding, uh, our, our new elk development operating platform is taking advantage of technology to allow people to move in online instantly. And what I mean by that is you can pour the project online, you can apply online, and then when you get approved, we could send you your room key online and it'll go directly to your phone. You can walk in the building, there'll be a little welcome package on your bed. So the one thing, the reason I bring that up is there's no room for discrimination in that process. <laughs> it's, it, is it, and so there's nothing like it is kind of in student housing where people might fill out a survey like, you know, I want to, I love the LA Dodgers. I, if there's another guy that loves the LA Dodgers, I'd love to, like, you don't put your personal characteristics to do any type of matching. You can, if it's unrelated to protected classes, I guess you could do that. It's just not, it's not something that we particularly want to mess around with. I would say there's a lot of co-living firms that are uh, operating housing or single family homes. They've got six people, eight people, 10 people living together. If that's the risk that they want to take, then that's something they can do. But when you're operating, you know, 200 people unrelated living together in a, in a building or 300 or whatever the number, you don't want to build a practice that can be susceptible to types of things. It's just, uh, yeah. All right. The last one on tenants, uh, or maybe it's maybe a little more about the developer, but kind of about the tenant. Somebody on Twitter said they were in D.C., uh, touring a co-living project and the developer was adamant about not having locks on the bedroom doors to create more trust and interaction. Is that his own personal or is that kind of industry standard or how do you think about that? That's the choice of the developer or the owner. Yeah, the door locks on bedroom doors are really a, a company preference. And I've seen I've seen companies that don't have locks on doors, but they will have safes, or they'll have locks on on drawers and furniture in in the bedroom itself. Can have it completely unlocked. It's really up to the, the co living firm uh, how how to manage that. Yeah, I have one more question on just kind of the co living world. Then I want to chat just a little bit about LA, and then we'll. We'll wrap it up. Yeah. But my, my last question sure. on the co-living is if, you know, a lot of the listeners here own, pro or I guess I have two more. The first one is, you know, there's there's people that own buildings and, and, and might be thinking about this. What questions should an owner or a developer be asking these companies before making a decision if they're going to do a management or a master lease agreement? Well, you're going to have to underwrite the company's financial strength. How do you do that if it's VC? I mean, you just kind of look at who their VC partners are. There's a, an odd intersection between the VC world and the real estate finance world right now yeah. with this. And the the banks don't care. <laughs> at the end of the day, if they if they need a securitized lease, they're going to need a securitized lease. So, um, okay. So I guess my my first piece of advice would be talk to your lender. What are they going to accept? 
right? If they need a year in a standby letter of credit, or if they need six months, or if they need three months, you're going to have to figure that out pretty early on. And you, you need to understand if the company is able to support that. So that's really the, the first item. The second is to look at your downside. And I'm not saying look at a conversion play because that you don't necessarily have to, have to do that, like I said earlier, especially with so many operators in the marketplace. But it, it's really what's your downside if things aren't working out? Are they slow? Is the market just not quite there yet? Are you leasing up in an off season? You're just going to want to treat it uh, like a, a nice conservative investor where you got to hedge your your downside scenarios as much as possible, uh, but the upside is is ultimately going to be worth it. And then the second one, and we don't have to be too uh, long winded on it, but it's kind of a loaded question: is if you already, let's just say you own like Class B apartments or stuff that's you know already built and already occupied and has been for a while, you don't have like a brand new building. Are there any best practices for converting existing units to co-living or certain requirements that, you know, lay, whether it's the layout of things where maybe they don't do the whole building, but they just kind of go unit by unit and make some of them co-living? You know, I mean, go unit by unit. Give it a shot. It's if you own the asset, I would recommend taking a two bed and if it's a two bed, two bath, you could probably tweak the walls a little bit, make it a three bed, two bath, furnish it, rent it by the room, see how it goes. And, and if it works well for you, you can grow from there. As an owner, again, you really have the flexibility to, to decide how you want to approach it. Now, the operators, keep in mind, if you go third party, they're going to want the whole building because... They're trying to grow their portfolio. But with that approach, they also bring a programmatic approach to, to community events and, and the branding. I mean, there's a lot of value that they bring, but they're going to want to take over your whole project. So you, there's nothing wrong with trying out one unit yourself. And if you like it, hiring a third-party firm, trying trying more units yourself. You can, there's a lot of ways you can do it. And is there any, and I, I, it's probably like city by city or ju- jurisdiction by jurisdiction, but is there any like zoning challenges from taking a two to a three bedroom or? Yeah, so listen, New York is a tough city to work in and props to all the people that started in New York because it's <laughs> very strict. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at stuff in Nashville, Nashville and I'm talking to my zoning attorney and I asked him questions. And he goes, we don't care about that. Why are you asking me that, Evan? (laughs) (laughs) This is New York. They've got hundreds of pages on that one item. I mean, it's pretty funny. So, so look, this is a legal question. You're going to, I have my knowledge that I've earned or, or learned, I should say, from lawyers in each marketplace, but I'm not a lawyer. So this is something where if you're considering it, talk to someone that's a local expert and uh, I even have a questionnaire that I typically send to local attorneys when I'm looking at a new marketplace. So you just want to make sure you're covered. But if you tweak one unit, you're, it's at your risk. You you could be okay. Uh, but if you're doing a big project, definitely do some <laughs> heavy legal lifting. Okay. All right. Just a couple more minutes and then we'll bring it home. Sure. But um, why'd you choose the LA market? Well, 
LA's got a lot going on, and I actually brought some statistics, uh, not just for LA, but for the U.S. in general, why co-living microunits, et cetera, are, are here to stay. But you know, LA is one of the biggest cities in the U.S. It's got a diversification of industries, and it's got a quality of life balance that people are striving for especially in, a, in a, a COVID world. Look, if you're locked down this winter, would you rather be in, in 70 de, uh, degree weather all day by the sun where you can surf and hang out? Or would you want to be in Chicago frozen and you can't even go into a restaurant, right? So I think there's a certain appeal uh, of the work-life balance for LA that drives people here. You've got the industries that are still doing well. Uh, Hollywood is is active again. And, you know, just here in Culver City, where I live, Amazon Film Studios is building a $620 million film studio where they're bringing a ton of jobs. The streaming industry is is on fire right now. Netflix is headquartered in Hollywood. You've got HBO, you've got Paramount. I mean, you've got all these entertainment. This is this is the, you know, the entertainment uh, capital of the U.S. right here. People People come here or a gig economy job to try to make something of themselves. So it, it just has that perfect combination of, of factors make it really attractive. The other thing I'll say from you know, Spencer, Levy, uh, Spencer Levy, who is the head of economics at CBRE, I had a conversation with him and he has a podcast called The Weekly Take, which uh, I, I, learned, I, I get a lot of good data from. He mentioned that in Hollywood, they're filming at unprecedented levels on the lots because with COVID restrictions, they can actually control the environment on a Hollywood studio lot versus being out in a random city, uh, how they used to film, right? So all of these firms have a backlog of shows they want to shoot and these lots are perfect for it. Yep. I love it. Maybe you just one more. I guess you, you kind of actually just nailed that question, which was just what's the the bull case for LA? And you kind of just answered it. But if there was anything else you wanted to add there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, 230,000 new jobs in LA over the next five years, mostly high paying. There's a lot happening in this city. So I'll give you, if, you, if you're not opposed to it, I'll give you just a couple of quick statistics that I found really compelling. This is from the Concord Group who we hired to do market opportunity analysis. They're, they're basically market analysis on steroids. We try to use data for all of our big decisions. So over the next 10 years, 40 million Americans are going to turn 25, just a bit above the 39 million Americans that hit that milestone sometimes in the last decade. Right? So you've got a lot of young professionals coming. In 20 years, the median age of first marriage has increased 2.8 years for females, 3.2 years for males. So that means that means a longer quote social life. Nearly 50% of millennials are living in cities right now. So, and finally, this is probably a mic drop one. The average net worth for all households in the U.S. under 35 is $6,682. They're not buying houses anytime soon. So again, when you see migrations out of downtown, those are people that have a choice. So that's it. All right, couple 
couple quick ones and then we'll we'll uh we'll call it a day. What is uh the best advice you've ever been given? <laughs> so best advice that I've ever been given is we call it rule number one. It's know your audience. I grew up playing I grew up playing music in bands and uh you always have to know who you're playing for and who you're pitching. So wherever you are, if you're if you have tenants, you're gonna have different messaging than if you're pitching to investors, than if you're on a you know a podcast or if you're doing uh, all kinds of activities in life, it's really important to get to know your audience and what makes them tick. Is there a book, uh, whether it's personal or business, that that you love? Well, the book would be a pretty standard go-to one. It's uh, Principles, Ray Dalio. That one so helpful. And we really focus on transparency. It's, I'd say nine out of the 10 problems I've had in my career come from uh, miscommunication or lack of transparency. If you had a billboard on the busiest highway in LA and you could put, <laughs> put anything on that billboard for the world to see, what would you put on there? <laughs> <laughs> Be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. Be a goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's this show called Ted Lasso. You got to check it out. It's on Apple TV. <laughs> oh, well. It's a, a U.S. football coach who randomly gets told to coach a Premier League soccer team in the U.K. Fish out of water. And his players are fighting. They don't trust him. And he's dealing with the lack of teamwork, the lack of you know commitment from everybody. Someone asks him about it. And he says, you have to be a goldfish. He says, they go, what, are that, what does that mean? Got to have a 10 second memory and not take things personally. I love it. So, yeah, there's a lot of people are taking it's It's been a tough year for a lot of people. And I think you got to be a goldfish, be optimistic, look towards the future. I love it. Be a goldfish. All right. If, if somebody wants to reach out and uh, check out your company or get in touch with you, how would they how would they do that? I'm on LinkedIn, Evan Casper. You can shoot me a note. And you can go to our website, elkdevelopment.com, or email us at info at elkdevelopment.com. Got it. Man, thank you so much for uh, for doing this and and uh, educating us. This was, this was an awesome episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.